Our series is called Life, Inc., and it's all about how that life marks us, which it does. There are going to be relationships that you'll have in life that won't leave any lasting impressions, but some will leave long-standing, long-marking impressions in your life. Last week, we talked about beauty mark, because many times people leave beautiful marks on our lives that transform us. But today, we're going to be talking about something darker. We're going to be talking about scar tissue. And you know, of course, that I'm not talking about physical scars, but let's talk about those for just a few moments so that we can get some context for the emotional scars that we sometimes carry. My guess is you know where your scars are today, at least the scars on your skin. I do. I know where mine are. They're pretty well cataloged in my mind, and and I can remember how I got them and what they remind me of. For instance, I have some marks on my left knee that I got from arthroscopic surgery. Um, I was playing touch football, and came down awkwardly on my left knee and, and snapped an ACL and wound up having surgery. And that just reminds me of one of the issues that I have in my life. I love sports, but no matter what I play, I get hurt. I took up a kinder and gentler sport in my 30s. I took up golf, and I was out playing golf one day and got dinged in the back of the head with a golf ball. Somebody just hit a real hot shot off the tee and just caught me, knocked me out colder than a mackerel. I mean, that's just me. Whatever I play, I get hurt. If I took up chess, I get carpal tunnel. That's just... <laughs> so that's what those scars remind me of, my athletic prowess. Um, I have a scar, probably the earliest scar that I got is up on my forehead. You know, you've heard about in the book of Revelation, there are people that get marked on their forehead. Well, I got marked on my forehead from chicken pox. And my mother told me not to scratch the marks, but I did, and one of them broke open, and I have this little spot, this little indentation on my forehead that reminds me that it's a good idea to listen to your mother. So all you kids, I got a scar that just every time I look in the mirror, it greets me and says, be sure to listen to the important people in your life. I have, um, <laughs> I grew up, I guess, a typical boy, you know, maybe girls are like this too, I don't know, but what was the commercial that had people do stupid stuff? I can't remember which one it was, but every time I would see that commercial, I'd raise my hand because I did a lot of stupid stuff. And I got a few scars on me from stupid things that I did when I was a kid growing up. I, I was playing soldier, you know, army combat with some of the kids in my neighborhood. We had our G.I. Joes out, and I had, and for those of you who are, who are not old like me, a G.I. Joe was like this military doll that you had. And so we were, we were all out there. We were doing this stuff, you know, that was combat. And I had this styrofoam airplane that had a wingspan of four feet. And you, you, know, you just toss it and fly. I don't know if anybody had one like that, but I thought it would be really cool just to set it on fire and just watch it fly, <laughs> you know? I thought it was a great idea. So, I mean, I did, man. I got it, I got it flaming up, and, and I threw it, and a big old chunk of burning styrofoam came down and caught me right there on the arm. And every time I look at that, now that I'm 50, I still remember the day that I did that. And that reminds me not to do stupid stuff. Because I got scars like that. So I, I, don't, I don't know where yours are, but I know where mine are. Chances are you know where your scars are. Scars tell stories, and basically scars say three things. First thing that a scar says is that something painful happened here. If you have a scar, something at some point painful happened, whether it was the needed cut of a skilled surgeon or whether it was like some of the things that I've talked about today where you were just hurt by something in life. You don't get scars by eating ice cream, at least external scars. You don't get scars because you went to a party and had a good time. You get scars because you got hurt. So scars say, number one, I got hurt. Number two, scars say, I've got a protective barrier here. Whenever you get injured or you get cut, 
or anything hurts you, your body sends chemicals racing to the spot of damage to put up a protective barrier to make sure you don't get hurt there again, or to make sure that you're protected and that you heal. The third thing that a scar says, and this is why a lot of people don't like scars on their skin and try to do something about them, scars say this is inferior tissue. You know, scars say this is something that went wrong in my life that's never going to be exactly right again. I, there are some of you who are surgeons and medical personnel and, and nurses, and you know a lot more than I do about medicine, or you know a lot more about biology than I know. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just shooting from the hip here to tell you what I've learned. What I've learned is that the tissue that eventually becomes a scar is never as good as the tissue that was there. There are just certain elements of skin that are never going to be present in scar tissue. Scar tissue is an emergency recovery barrier situation. Now, not only do we have scars on our skin, really the scars that we really worry about most of the time are the scars that are on the inside of us. People, you know, sometimes pay attention to their skin scarring, and they'll say, well, I wish I, I didn't have the scar. But the truth of the matter is the scars that can really hurt you are the scars on the inside of you. And if you've had surgery, chances are your physician, your surgeon is concerned, at least at some level, about scar tissue. For instance, knee surgery. I had, I had arthroscopic knee surgery. I talked to a lady right before the service who's had knee replacement surgery. You know, when I had knee surgery, I, I'll never forget this. You know, I thought, wow, my knee hurts, and I'm just going to put this thing up, and I'm not going to use it for a while. I'm going to be on crutches, and I'm just going to leave it still because it hurts too bad to move. Would you believe while I was in the hospital the very day of the surgery, they came into me that afternoon and said, well, we've got to start moving that knee. And I thought, move my knee? Are you insane? They actually wanted me to step on it. And I'm thinking, no, I'm just going to leave this knee like this for the rest of my life. I don't want to move it because it hurts too much to move. But if you've had surgery on your knee or probably a lot of other joints that you need to use, you understand that they're going to want you moving that joint as soon as possible. Why? Because if you don't move it, scar tissue is going to build up and it can affect your range of motion. And if that scar tissue does build up, the solutions are not going to be good. They're going to want you to break through that scar tissue. And in fact, if you can't do that, they'll, they'll put you under and do what you don't feel like doing while you're awake. Or they may have to perform surgery to get rid of the scar tissue, which raises the possibility of more scar tissue. In my first church in the mid-70s, there was a young man who had surgery on his spine, a kind of semi-elective surgery, and, and spinal surgery wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. And although it corrected the problem, it created a scar tissue problem in his spine, and he was pretty much crippled the rest of his life. So scar tissue is a big thing. But you know, of course, that I didn't come here this morning to talk to you about biology. You know that I, I'm talking to you about the scars that mark us on the soul and spirit. Because what I've, what I've observed in life is that many people really have trouble dealing with the scarring and the pain that have happened in their lives. Like the song that Lance just said, where the, where the young woman's testimony is, because of what you've done to me, my whole life has changed, and I can't do the things that I would like to do because of the scarring. Is that really the way life has to be? I know I'm talking to people today who have been scarred. All of us have. Is that how life is? Do, do you say, well, because I've been hurt, I don't want to move anymore. I just want to stop. Or do you say, because I've been hurt, I've put up a protective barrier, and nobody's ever going to hurt me here anymore? This morning, we're going to talk about those two questions for a few moments. But before we do, let's talk about what scars us in life. I've got a list of six things, and maybe my list isn't your list. Maybe some of what's on my list is on yours, but let me give you mine, and then you can, you can deal with this. But I, I thought about six things that tend to scar us in life. Number one on my list is hateful words. 
You know, how many of us are still scarred today because of something someone said to us when we were growing up? Maybe it was a dad who said to you, hey, you're not beautiful. No boy's ever going to want to take you out. No boy's ever, you're fat. Nobody's ever going to want to marry you. Or maybe in a, in a hateful argument, maybe a parent said, you know what? You really weren't wanted anyway. We just, we, and, or these are these sometimes the most hurtful things can come out, even with people who love each other. It can happen in, in a marriage. Maybe some of you have been married for a long time. Maybe you've been married 20 years, but still resonating and echoing off the walls of your mind or a word, or it is a word that's been said at a, at a moment, a hateful word, scars. And some of you still carry those scars today. Here's the one that I, in my life, probably the thing that scarred me, or I still go back to these scars, deception. Someone tells you something and you believe it and you, you think this person is telling the truth and you find out later that person was lying to you and didn't mean a word he or she said. That scars. Disillusionment. I looked up to you. You were my coach. You were my teacher. You were my pastor. You were my friend. You're, you're my mom. You're my dad. Disillusionment scars. Abandonment. The feeling of being left. A man walks out on a woman, or a woman walks out on a man, or parents walk out on children. And, and again, I, I, I want to talk about something today because I, we need to talk about it. And I know that in our culture, divorce touches so many of us. In fact, I'm sure it's touched all of our families at some point. And there are times when divorce is necessary. There's, time, there's a time when a marriage can't go any further. But even at the risk of offending anyone, which I don't want to do today, couldn't we all agree that divorce has become just a little too common in our culture today? I mean, could, and, and people sometimes will tell me, and, and oftentimes it's the, it's the perpetrator. You know, in, in a divorce situation, often there's a perpetrator and a victim. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's a perfect husband or wife. But often what I've discovered in 30 years of pastoring, there's somebody who really wants to end the marriage, and there's somebody who's trying desperately to hold on. And often it'll be that perpetrator who'll say something like this to me. He or she will say, well, it's not going to affect my kids. I know somebody whose kids have gone through a divorce and they're fine. And yes, that's true to a, to a degree. But let's not forget, folks, abandonment scars. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to hurt anyone because I know there are times when there's no way out. That's the only, only solution. I understand that. But I'm just saying we need to take a moment to stop and realize that abandonment scars. There's emotional and physical abuse. Some of you grew up in abusive situations, and I'm not talking about parents who discipline. I'm talking about over-the-edge, over-the-limits, out-of-line, unreasonable abuse. And some of you, you may actually have physical scars from when you were abused physically as a child. Number six is the one that I wish we didn't have to talk about in church, but we need to talk about, and that's sexual exploitation. Just heard that so many times through the years where someone will say, Pastor, my problem started when I was sexually exploited as a child by some person who I should have been able to have respected and looked up to. And, and the reverberations from sexual abuse and exploitation are massive and they're longstanding. And folks, I've got to tell you what I believe personally, and maybe I'm over the edge today, but as I read the scriptures, I just believe anyone who makes a longstanding habit of abusing a child. I don't think that person is saved. I don't think that person is going to heaven. In fact, I think there is a very hot spot in hell for anybody who would abuse a child sexually. There just seems to be a line that's crossed in the sexual exploitation of a child. And people who are sexual predators who abuse children very rarely ever turn around. 
the markings are huge. All of us are going to deal with some of that. Some of us are going to deal maybe with all of that. But my thing today is not for us to just get down, you know, the song we heard a few moments ago is about a a young woman who, like, deals with all these things and just says, this is how my life is going to be. My question is, if you've been through scarring today, does your life have to stop? I mean, you could say, well, Mark, I've got all these problems in my life. Well, are you going to sit life out? More importantly, are you going to shut people out? I've met so many people who who they, they can't have an intimate marriage. They can't have relationships with people because something scarred them in life, and now they can't trust anyone anymore. Now they can't give themselves to anybody anymore. And they have frigidity, they have anger, they have anguish. And my question is, is that the way it has to be? And I don't believe it is. In fact, I know it's not. And this morning, we're going to deal with those two questions that scarring asks. Number one, the question is, what do I do when it hurts too bad to move And what do I do when I put up protective walls and said nobody is going to hurt me anymore? Those two questions, and we'll be through. Here's the first one. How do we heal right when it hurts too bad to move? Could I just ask you to raise your hand for a moment? This This is just, I don't think I ever do this, but could I just ask you, how many of you have been hurt so bad by something emotionally that you just didn't, you wanted to stop? Could you raise your hand for a moment? Because I can raise both my hands right there. I mean, I've been hurt so bad by something in life that I just didn't want to get up the next morning. I didn't want to see people. I just wanted to crawl into my hole and shut life down for a moment. What do you do when life is so painful you just want to stop? Let me give you a couple of verses of Scripture to think about this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Listen, when I'm hurting, I need comfort. I need some serious, gut-level, realistic, life-changing kind of comfort. And the Bible says, when I'm hurting too bad to move, I should remember God is my source, look at this, of all comfort. Now, I've got people in my life who are the source of some comfort. When I'm hurting, I want to talk to Mary Alice, my wife. You know, we've been married 30 years this June. And I mean, she's been my life partner. And so when I'm hurting, I want to talk to her. I don't try to add to her grief, but it's like it's just healing when she's close to me and I've had issues and problems. I've got friends in my life, people that I work with here on the staff who are such a comfort and encouragement to me. I want them to get close. I want to talk to them about what's hurting me. But now, wait, are are you listening to me this morning? There is nobody in your life who can be the source of all comfort but God. And why do we suffer so much when God is so there? To help us with our problems. You say, well, Mark, he's not visible. He can't talk to me. Yeah, but he's real. I mean, he talks to us through his word. His comfort is on a deeper level than even physical comfort. And the Bible says he is the God of all comfort. Now, you know, of course, that the Bible wasn't written in English. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So when we try to get the message of the Bible, we have to go back to the original words sometimes to really understand what, the, what, the, what God's trying to say to us. The word for comfort there is a cool word. The Greek word for comfort means to get close. And that's what God is saying. He is the God of all getting close. One of the reasons why we wrestle with God when we struggle is we think God is way out there. i got to talk to him in stained glass English. Oh, thou God of all creation. Hey, man, talk to God like he is your heavenly father. Say, Lord, help me. I am in trouble again. He's the God of all comfort. Now, 
Watch how the Bible like kicks it up a notch here in the middle of this verse. Verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. What happens when I'm scarred and I hurt so bad that I don't want to move anymore? I am thinking all about Mark. Now, I think I have a legitimate reason to think about Mark because I've been hurt. But do you notice how God works in this? God says that if we can come to him, we can get close to him, and God will comfort us so that we can get up and go out and help somebody else who's got the same problems. Folks, if you're hurting today and you've been scarred and you said, I'm getting out of the game, I'm going to sit on the bench, you don't know how badly I've been hurt, one of the most therapeutic things you can ever do is to help somebody else. That's what God says. God says he would comfort us so that we would comfort other people. Now I want to take you to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 because we're going to read about Jesus and how he helps us when we have issues in our lives and pain. Hebrews 2 verse 18, for because he himself, I'm reading in the amplified version which like gives us all the inferences of the text. For because he himself in his humanity has suffered in being tempted, tested and tried, he is able immediately to run to the cry of those who are being tempted and tested and tried who therefore are being exposed to suffering. Now, I've gone through some tough things in my life, not as tough maybe as you have, but I've been through a few tough things. When I'm hurting, the last person I want to talk to is, a, some, is somebody who doesn't know anything about pain, right? I mean, how many of you have been through something? Maybe you've been through the loss of a loved one, or you've been through a divorce, or you've been through maybe the sickness of a child, and you just talk to somebody who doesn't have a clue about any of those things. It not it funny how they have all the answers for us? Sometimes don't you just want somebody who can help you cry? Somebody who knows what the pain is like? The Bible says Jesus knows what suffering is like. Listen, he knows what it's like to have best friends leave you when you're in a time of trouble. He knows what it's like to have somebody that you loved and counted on turn and sell you and disappoint you. Jesus knows what it's like to lie on a cross and have people nail nails in his hands and feet. And here's what the Bible says, that when you're going through pain, you can run to him because he knows what it's like. You know, I've, I've taught for a long time, and I know what somebody's thinking right now. Somebody's thinking, that's a lot of help. I can tell my problems to somebody, I can tell my problems to God. Maybe Mark's saying there's something therapeutic and telling my problems to God, oh, no, 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 it's so much more than that. See, when you tell your problems to Jesus, it's not just that he's a sympathetic hearer. Check his resume out. I mean, he, he does awesome things. He was the one, you know, the woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years and spent all of her money on physicians, she just said, if I can just touch him. And Jesus told her her faith had made her well. He was the one, you know, he was walking one day and a blind man wanted to get Jesus' attention. He kept yelling Jesus' name and they said, shut up, you're bothering him. And he wouldn't shut up. And Jesus asked him, what would you like for me to do for you? And he said, I want to see. And Jesus touched him and he saw. He was the one who stood outside the grave of a friend who had been dead for four days and called him back to life. All I'm saying to you is when you take your hurt, your pain, your scarring, and you tell Jesus about it, he's a real person. He was not only God, he's human at the same time. He knows what it's like to go through all the stuff that we've gone through. And you put your problems in the hands of somebody who can do awesome things. Healing right. So what do we do? When it hurts too bad to move, remember that you have a God who's the God of all getting close. Let's tackle that second one because it's tougher. 
What do we do when we've been hurt so badly that we say, nobody is ever going to hurt me here again? I don't know that we articulate that, but boy, I think we live it out. We say, I trusted somebody, but boy, I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm not going to be burned again. You know, I, I was in a relationship with a guy, and that guy was just a total jerk. So if I get another relationship with another guy, I'm going to transpose all the feelings that I have about why that didn't go wrong on this guy. Or when I was growing up, I had this situation with my parents, and, and, I, and, and, and I'm going to make sure that with my kids, you know, I'm going to make sure that they know how tough it's going to be. How do we deal with it when we say, nobody's ever going to hurt me here again? By the way, isn't it ironic that when people say that, they wind up getting hurt again and again and again? Well, before I give you the answer, I need to tell you a story. You guys who listen to me speak every weekend, you know that my favorite character of the Old Testament is Joseph. I want to be Joseph. I don't want to go through all the problems that he went through, but I want to be Joseph. Joseph's just a great guy. He is, he is the 11th son of 12 sons, and his 10 older brothers absolutely, as we used to say in Texas, hate his guts. They hate him. They hate the side of him. If you've been marked in a family situation, then you know what Joseph's life was like. His brothers scarred him because they hated him. And one day they got their chance. Their dad was a long way away. They saw Joseph coming. They said, let's kill him. And then they changed their mind and decided to sell him. And they sold him as a slave. They watched their brother have his wrist tied and be dragged along behind camels to be dragged off to Egypt. And then when he got to Egypt, it was pretty much a series, a series of unfortunate events. He got sold as a slave, and for the next 13 years, he would sort of rise with God's blessing, but then somebody else would do something dirty to him. He wound up in jail. He wound up lied on. He wound up accused of a phony rape. I mean, it's just one bad thing after another. And Joseph could have been so scarred by what his brothers did to them, he could have been angry the rest of his life. But if you read the story, and by the way, I hope you take time sometime. It's in Genesis 37 through 50, the last 13 chapters of Genesis. What happened was God just had awesome plans for Joseph. And in one day, in one morning, I think, he went from being a prisoner in jail to being the most powerful man in the world. Now, that's pretty high rise. That's, talk about ascent to power. That's huge. It all came down like this. See, God had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams, and one of the king's boys had been down in the prison with Joseph, and this guy had a dream, and Joseph interpreted it. And Joseph had said, hey, remember me when you go back to talk to the Pharaoh? And this guy just blocked Joseph out for the next two years and never said anything. But one morning, the Pharaoh had a dream, and it freaked him out, and he couldn't interpret it. And he said, I need somebody to help me, and none of the king's guys could help him with the dream. And the guy who worked for the king said, there's a guy down there in the jail who knows how to deal with dreams. And Pharaoh said, trot him out here. And Joseph came in. He heard the king's dream. He said, I got the answer for you. He said, your dream is this. You're going to have seven really good economic years, and then you're going to have seven bad years. The economy is going to tank. You're going to have famine. There's, not, there's going to be a drought. There's not going to be food. And he said, here's what you need to do. During the seven good years, you need to store up the excess produce and bring somebody in to be your administrator, your guru, you know, your, your economy czar who can keep the economy up and running and who can measure out, meet out, sell the grain during the seven bad years so that people don't starve to death. Pharaoh said, you're the man with the plan, now you're the man with the job. And in one day, I mean, he went from an orange jumpsuit pushing a broom to being the most powerful man in the world. He's 30 years old. 
And over the next few years, God just blesses him off the charts. He marries a beautiful woman. He has two fantastic young boys. But one day during the bad years, his bros show up. I mean, you know, they, they're hungry too. They're, they're living over another place with their father. You know, they've forgotten about Joseph. They're sure he's dead. But they walk into the palace and they don't realize they're dealing with Joseph because he doesn't look like he did. I mean, the last time they saw him, he was slave on a rope. Now he's king of bling. I mean, he's got all this gold and stuff and he's got this Egyptian look going on and they don't know who he is. Joseph checks them out and he, he hears them and What's really cool is he invites them to come to Egypt to live. And he, after he reveals to them who he is, they're scared to death, but he takes care of them. He gives them houses. He gives them chariots to drive around. And most of all, jo- Joseph is so glad for his dad to get there and see how that Joseph is still alive and God's blessed him. But now, th- let me get to the part of the story that really resonates with where we are today. His brothers are scared of one thing. They're saying, Joseph is being good to us because daddy is alive. And when daddy dies, we are in some serious Dutch. Because they're saying, you know what? When daddy dies, he's going to get even with us. And Joseph, at this point, now has all the torture chambers in Egypt at his disposal. Hey, listen, how do you deal with it when someone who has hurt you is right there before you and the ball is over the plate and you can get even with them? You've got the power in your hands to get even. How do you deal with that? Because Joseph now has that opportunity. Listen, read, read this with me in Genesis 50, verse 15. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong that we did to him. Here's this person who says, you know what, I've been hurt so badly, nobody's ever going to hurt me anymore. I'm going to block people out. I'm not going to trust people anymore. What we don't realize is behind that feeling is a secret desire to get even. A secret desire to make the playing field level to get justice. Joseph's answer is classic. This is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph is going to say three things to his brothers who are terrified now that their daddy is dead that Joseph is going to get even with them for all the scarring that they put on him. Listen to what he says. Don't be afraid of me. me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. There are three things. If you're saying today... Nobody's going to hurt me again. I was hurt. I was scarred when I was young. I was hurt. I was scarred in my first marriage. Nobody's ever going to scar me again. Three things Joseph said will free you from that. You ready? Number one, Joseph asked a question to his brothers, am I God? See, often when when we don't forgive, when we want to get vengeance, what we're saying is, without realizing it, I'm God. Somebody's got to make this thing work out. Somebody's got to get even here. And Joseph just said, am I God? The second thing he says was, you intended to hurt me. Now, this is much bigger than it sounds at first. Because Joseph doesn't say to his brothers, hey, it was nothing. I mean, he was honest with them. Sometimes you do need to confront the person who has hurt you and be frank about it. And and Joseph is not going to hurt them, but he said, I want to be honest. You intended to hurt me. Why is that statement so important? It's so important because we need to keep it separate from the third thing that Joseph said He said, God intended to help me. So very important that we keep those two statements separate because a lot of people can't. And without realizing it, they get it all fuzzy and they think maybe God intended to hurt them. I've heard people tell me before, well, Mark, I grew up in a home 
where my parents were substance abusers, so I guess God just made me a drug addict or God just made me an alcoholic. Or, you know, I grew up in a climate of anger, and that's just the way God made me. I'm just intense. I'm just an angry person. Or I was sexually exploited when I was a child. Now I've got gender confusion, so God made me gender confused. It's really, really important to be able to look at the person who's hurt you and say, I'm not going to get anger. I'm not going to get vengeance. I'm going to forgive you, but I do want you to know you intended to hurt me. But then he said, God intended it for good. And then Joseph did the one thing that makes all the difference. He forgave. Do you know our Lord talked about scar tissue over and over and over in his ministry. I'm not the first one to bring this message. Jesus brought it all the time. He was talking about it all the time. In fact, Jesus talked about this more than anybody in the Bible. And he said, you got to forgive, you got to forgive, you got to forgive. He said, when you pray, forgive. He, He taught us the Lord's Prayer. Think about it. The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we've already forgiven those who sinned against us. Jesus said, if you forgive people your trespasses, your Father will forgive you. I mean, it's not like God, because people are always asking me, oh, man, forgive. I can't do that. What's the next thing on the list? God doesn't have a next thing. You know what? It's either forgiveness or vengeance. There's a problem with vengeance. I want to take a few moments to talk to you because somebody could say, well, well, Mark, I can't forgive. You just don't know how I've been hurt. So I'm just going to hold this in my heart. Well, what you're really trying to do is to move to a place of vengeance. But I have some problems in my life with vengeance, and here, here's what they are. Number one, with revenge, I'm not the right person to get vengeance. That's why Joseph said, am I God? I mean, many times we feel like, well, if I forgive someone, they're going to get off scot-free. No, 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 no. They still have to deal with God. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God said, I'll bring payback. When we forgive someone, we're not saying, well, this person's never going to suffer for what he or she did for me. We're just tearing up our personal invoice and saying, you don't owe me anything anymore. So number one, vengeance, I'm always the wrong person to get it. Number two, I never know the right amount. I've gotten vengeance a few times. I was the person who had the opportunity to get vengeance. One of the things that eats at me is I never know the right amount. I either don't get enough and I wish I could bust them one more time or I get too much and I feel sort of creepy and guilty about that. I never know the right amount. You know, the third thing, how many of you have heard the old statement as you grew up, revenge is what? If I had to put something in that blank, you know what I would say? I would say revenge is confusing because every time I get it, I I don't know what to make of it. How am I supposed to feel now? I mean, yeah, something bad's happened to you and you did something bad to me, but I don't feel any better. The scars are still there. See, when you forgive someone, what you're saying to them is, hey, you don't owe me anymore. I'm a sinner too. you got to deal with God. Well, someone will say, well, Mark, I'm, I'm going to forgive this person and leave them to God, but God is a merciful God. Maybe God won't deal with them. What happens if this person asks forgiveness? Well, hey, I've had that happen to me. I've had someone hurt me and really, really hurt me, and I didn't think about it for a long time. I sort of forgave and forgot. But, you know, later on, that person would accept Christ, and that person came back to me and said, Mark, I'm so sorry for what I did. And the first thing that came to me was, you know what? This isn't the same person who hurt me. The Bible says if any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. St. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers who was venerated and respected 
was a bad guy before he got saved. He slept around. I mean, he was a bad, bad dude. And God saved him. He accepted Christ. And he was, he was sleeping with a woman before he got saved, and they, they, they happened to run into each other on the street, and Augustine just kept right on walking. And, and she turned around and called out to him. She said, Augustine, it's Claudia. And he said, yeah, but it's not Augustine anymore. So I'm just telling you, forgive today because God will, God will be the one to execute vengeance. And if that person receives Christ and if that person turns from their sin, he or she won't be the same person who sinned against you. I've got to close with this. I've been thinking about scar tissue as a sermon since November of 1996. Because something became sort of a visual metaphor for me that led to this message. I was speaking in Toronto, Canada. And I remember early in the week, you know, when you're a speaker as I, you sort of see people in a crowd, and there are certain people who will sort of catch your eye. There was a lady in that church, an Asian lady. All the time I was speaking, she just had this huge smile. I mean, I felt like they could turn the lights off in this worship center and there would still be light because she had that smile that just kind of lights up the room. And, you know, there, there's some Christian ladies, you know, who, who love the Lord and are filled with joy, and they have a beauty that this world will know nothing about. And that's the way Kim was. And after the service, I'd, I'd be greeting people, and Kim was always there to meet me, and she was always so encouraging. I mean, she would want to tell me what God did in her life through the message that night and, and, and you know, thank me for the message and stuff. And I just really got to the place where I would look forward to Kim coming up and talking to me. And the pastor came up to me after service. He said, well, uh, I saw you talking to Kim. He said, uh, you've seen her before, haven't you? And I said, no, not as far as I know. He said, all you have. He said her name is Kim Fuke, and she's in one of the ten most famous photographs in the history of the world. And again, it didn't resonate. He said, you remember the, the girl in the photograph? Because that's how everybody in the world knows Kim Fuke. During the Vietnam War, we dropped napalm on a village. Remember the little Asian girl who was running naked through the streets? That was Kim. What I didn't know was the rest of the story. After, the, after she ran through the streets, they thought there was no chance that she would live. Most of the ones who received that full hit of napalm, they didn't live. And they thought Kim was going to die, but they took her to the hospital and just kind of waited for her to die. And there were two surgeons that said, we're going to take a chance on this. We think we may be able to help her. And they did 17 surgeries. For a year and a half, Kim Fuke was in the hospital between life and death, but God spared her life. And after that, the Soviets, communists, used Kim as a propaganda tool. They took her all over the world and displayed her. I mean, I'll break for a moment because I remember after I found this out, Kim had come to church and she had on a sleeveless dress with a jacket. She took her jacket off and showed me the ends of her shoulders and the back. And I have to tell you, I have never seen human flesh look like that in my life. I've seen a lot of scarring, but I've never seen scarring like that. And the Soviets took her around the world to show her scars to the rest of the world and say, look, this is what American imperialism did. They asked, Kim asked to immigrate to Cuba, and I believe, if I got my story straight, I believe it was while she was in Cuba that the most incredible thing happened. Kim found 
Jesus Christ. And her life was transformed. She got married, and they were, she and her husband were being flown through Canada, and they just walked off the airplane and asked for asylum, and they wound up in the same community where I was speaking. Like I say, it was November of 96. In the middle of the week, I was greeting people at the end of the service, and Kim came to talk with me, and she kind of waited for everybody else to kind of leave so that we could, she could kind of talk to me and tell me what was on her mind. And she said, Pastor, I, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I have to fly down to Washington. By the way, if you look up her name, you can find this on Wikipedia, the story about what she was asked to do. The Vietnam War veterans were having a ceremony, a celebration at the Vietnam Memorial, and they had asked Kim to come and speak. You can read about that in a lot of venues, but what I'm about to tell you is the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Because Kim stood there in that lobby in that church in Toronto, and she said, Pastor, I've been asked to speak. Maybe the men who dropped the napalm on me will be there that day. And she said, I want to be able to tell them something. Would you pray for me so that I can tell them I forgive them because Christ has forgiven me? If you're holding anger in your heart and unforgiveness towards somebody today, you can live in scar tissue and you can shut people out and shut life off. But if Jesus Christ has come into your life and turned on all the lights, you can afford to forgive. You can afford to forgive because Christ has forgiven you. If Kim Fuke, with her back a maze of scars, could forgive the guys who dropped the napalm on her, I'm telling you, you and I can forgive the people who have hurt us. We can forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Would you pray with me, please? I never said this would be easy, but it's possible, and God will help you. Now, if you've never accepted Christ, you need help in so many ways. I mean, the Bible tells us that when you receive Christ, Jesus himself, through his Holy Spirit, comes to live in you. And God makes you a new creation. And he washes your sins away, and you have a future home in heaven. But along with that, God's Holy Spirit will help you. God will help you deal with these issues that are too big for you. That's why at the end of every service, I give you a chance to pray with me. And these aren't magic words that I pray, but they are words that call out to God. You don't get Jesus in your life by being a Baptist or a Catholic or a Methodist. You don't get forgiven because you join a church or give money. It is the gift. The Bible keeps saying it is the gift of God. That's why Scripture says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why I always pray this prayer with you at the end of the service. And it happens every week. People call on the Lord. If you would like to do that right now, I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can repeat this after me from your heart. Let's go. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. Come into my life. Forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. What you just did was private. Maybe nobody would know about it. But here's the thing. I'm going to ask you to do something that's just a little bit public. 
you have a, a worship guide, and at the bottom it's perforated. Would you just put an address where I can mail something to you and check the box that says, Mark, I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior? If you'll do that and, and leave it for me, there's some boxes at the back doors or the bottom of the staircases. I'm going to send you three real easy-to-understand booklets this week that will help you take your first steps in following Jesus. There are other boxes you can check on there if you want information about the church or, or anything else. But again, if you would just do that and detach it and drop it by the back door or at the bottom of the staircase, I'll get those books to you this week. And now we're going to worship the Lord in a different way. The Bible tells us that if we give to the Lord's work, that he will use our gifts to change the world, but he'll bless us. Nobody can outgive God. And so today at this moment, we're going to receive our tithes and our offerings and our ushers are going to come now, and so there, uh, there are some envelopes in the back of the pews if you want to use those. And if I move through this too quickly, you can drop your offering also in those boxes at the back of the back doors there. Let's pray. Father, please receive our gifts. We're thankful for the way that you take care of us, and you're so good to us. We want you to know that it's not just talk, but it's more than that. We want to bring our tithes and our gifts and lay them at your feet so that you can work in people's lives and you've promised to bless us. We receive that promise in Jesus' name. Amen.